Uh, as we get started today, I kind of went back and I really wanted to get in the mindset of our series and really thinking about the bad boys of Easter and think about bad characters in movies. Anyone like movies? Okay, so I was started thinking about who are some of the villains, who are the really bad villains that we just, oh, we'd love to hate. And my, my first thought was, I went to Back to the Future. Remember Biff? What a terrible character he is. And it doesn't matter what, what age, time period it is. Like Mad Dog Tannen is, is terrible. Future Biff in like the weird 80s future is terrible. Casino Tycoon Biff, he's horrible as well. And so just a, a rotten, rotten character. Uh, fantastic movie. How about Shawshank Redemption? Anyone? Okay, what about the warden, Warden Norton? What a terrible guy. Evil schemes, the way that he punishes Andy Dufresne and frames him for everything, just kind of makes your, your blood boil. Uh, let's go Disney. We have some kids in the room, right? Disney's really great with their villains. This villain, I think, tops them all. How about Mother Gothel? Uh, from Tangled, Rapunzel's mother, such an emotional manipulator. I feel sorry for whoever wrote this movie because you feel like this is some firsthand experience. The way that they wrote her character is like, ooh, like you, did you draw from real life? Because that's, it's dark and she's a horrible, horrible character. Lots of family baggage there. Uh, I hope this movie is in your top five of all times. We're gonna go year 2000, Gladiator, all right? The evil emperor Commodus, horrible character. He's so weak and he lies and he's insecure and he cheats and he's a literal backstabber, just, ah, uh, can't stand him. But I think the one that takes the cake is, we'll go Harry Potter world. How about Dolores Umbridge? Oh my goodness, this lady, her sense of justice is just so warped and she violates all of our sense of good and right and decentness, the oppression. Have you noticed that her pink changes throughout the movie as she gets more and more power and control? Her pink fades from like a really strong pink to really dull and like dark and dirty like her soul. She's evil. <laughs> personified. All right. We're, we're, we're just, we're, we're going to get real today. All right. So th like there's some bad characters in movies, just some evil characters that we can't stand. Well, our bad boy that we are going to cover today has been stereotyped for 2000 years. We know that he is a bad character. He is the one that is gets framed with this, just the mere mention of his name. We know that if you say this word, that we are talking about a, a backstabber, we're talking about someone who is disloyal, we're talking about someone who betrayed you. And we're talking about Judas this morning. And as I started to study and to work on this message, I, as I dove into the character of Judas, the more I started to learn about who he is, the more I started to really put myself in his shoes and understand his motivations, 
I almost think the more I, I started to understand him as a character, and my hope is that you would see Judas, and you maybe even see yourself in the story of Judas. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at his life and see what he is about. And I want us to think about his story through the lens of bargaining. Have you ever tried to bargain with God? Have you ever said a prayer, God, if if you get me out of this mess, I swear I'll, I'll go to church, right? And maybe that's why you're here today, and we're thankful for that. So, um, or, you know, maybe it's, God, if you, if you allow this to happen, please, I, I'll never do this again, fill in the blank. What, what is that? Why do we bargain? Why do we do this? There's something in the sense of bargaining that, we know that we can't accomplish it on our own, right? We bargain because we know that we need help. I don't need a bargain if I can actually do it, if I'm in control. But when I'm not in control, when I need help from an outside source, that's when we start to bargain and say, hey, if you do this, I will do that. Hey, if you do this, I'll never do this again. I think that we can see some bargaining happen in Judas's life. But before we get to that, I really want us to think about all of his hopes and expectations that he brings to the table. Judas has these epic expectations that he brings. And if we don't understand these, we will never understand why he does the things that he does. So let's talk about these epic expectations that he brings. He has huge hopes. He has huge dreams. He is in this like generational expectation of a, of a religious movement. And he is in this really unique point in Old Testament history. Now, he doesn't realize that he is in the Old Testament, right? He doesn't realize that based on the events that happen this night, that all of history will determined, be determined based on this date. He doesn't understand that hey, we, we're, you, you don't know it, but you're in this period of you know, before Christ, the BC, BCE, whatever it is. And, and after this, we will literally change our time and our calendar based on this event. He doesn't know that it's that epic. There's no way that he could know that. But he does know that they're in this weird period of Old Testament history, right, where there's, there's not any more prophets, We've had prophets and this kind of person for God will do this stuff and we see this, these movements kind of ebb and flow and we're in this period of silence. We're in this period where we don't know what's happening. We're waiting. We're anticipating. He knows that they're in this period where they're looking for a king. They're looking for a Messiah in the line of David. And the Roman occupation that ha is happening right now in, in Jerusalem really helps accentuate this. It really helps turn up the, the knobs. Because he knows that, hey, this has happened before in Israel's history, that we've had oppressors. We've had people come in and, and rule us. But normally what happens is that oppressor will come in, take all the people, and then send them back to their homeland. They will scatter the Jewish people. 
They try and break up their culture, try to break up their language, try to get the Jewishness out of the system and make it to where they can't mobilize and organize and actually like have an uprising. So this has happened before a couple periods where there's been an exile and people are taken away. Well, this is different because they have this oppressor, they have the Roman Empire that's over them, but they're still at home. They're still in Judea. They're still in Jerusalem. Their oppressors are right there. And so there's this kind of hope and expectation. Hey, maybe God is doing something here. We haven't heard from any prophets in a while. We have this oppressor that we want to kick out of town. And maybe someone's going to come up and rise up. And we're going to have this political and military leader take us into a new age. Restore the nation of Israel the way that it was under King David. There's all these expectations that are flowing that Judas brings to the table. He sees all of this interesting stuff happen, and then it also gets personal for Judas. So not only is everyone kind of looking around going, hey, is, is this it? There's another uprising over here. This was quite common. Hey, there's, there's, someone got some people and got a following over here. I wonder if that's it. Let's look over here. This is happening, but then it gets personal for Judas. This up-and-coming rabbi picks him to be a part of his team. This is pretty special. To be chosen by a rabbi is a big deal. They see something in you. They believe in you. They say, hey, come do like I am doing. Come be like me. We're going to do this together. I'll teach you my ways. And wow, this is a big deal. It's a big responsibility. This illustration might be a little confused because of the age difference here. Like, in, we know that Jesus is, is older and calling this, this group of, you know, kind of teens and 20s to, to lead this new movement. But imagine you're a sports agent, okay? Imagine you are looking for the next up-and-coming superstar, and then you find him. And you go, I'm going to sign this kid to a contract because he's going to take us to the top. Oh, I found my golden ticket. There's this phenom and, and we're a part of the same team now. That's a little bit like what is happening with Judas and the disciples here. Or it might be like this. Imagine you are a, a, a political advisor and you find this up and coming politician and you go, oh, this person, they are the next thing. They're going to take us all the way. They are, I'm going to hitch my wagon to this new candidate because, hey, big things are going to happen. It's a little bit like what Judas is feeling when Jesus picks him to be a part of his team and one of his disciples. It's a big deal. There's these national hopes that a king would come. There's this rebellious kind of spirit happening among the people that we would have this new Messiah kick out the Roman oppressors. And then Judas has this front row seat to all the action. He's a part of the inner circle. He gets to be there and watch it happen. It's personal. This could be the guy Judas carries these 
epic expectations, but he also reveals his financial motivations, and that's where we're going to pick up. So you kind of know some of the things that are floating around in Judas's heart and mind. We're going to jump in a story here, and we're going to see that him and Jesus aren't on the same page. We'll see some differences in finances, and money is such a good indicator, right, of where your wealth is, there is your heart. And we're going to see that in this story. So this is the last week of Jesus' life. Jesus has already come in to Jerusalem. This today is Palm Sunday, right, where we celebrate this coming. He comes in, and there's this whole, whole celebration, this whole symbolic thing as Jesus enters the city. Jesus has done the stuff. And turned over the tables in the temple. They've, they've kind of caused this firestorm in the, the big city of Jerusalem. And then they slip out and they go to this town, Bethany. This is about two miles away from Jerusalem. This is also where uh, Lazarus is from. You remember Lazarus, the one, his friend, Jesus' friend who was dead, dead, dead for several days, and Jesus raised him from the grave. And now people know about Lazarus. People are kind of flocking to Bethany to go see this guy. They, they want to experience, like, this really happened, right? I know that he was dead, but now I see him. So there's kind of this commotion in Bethany. And so Jesus and his team, they slip out about two, two miles. They go to Bethany. They're there at, at the house of Simon the leper. In Matthew 26 Verse 6, it says, While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. Now, John, in his telling of this event, he says that it's Mary of Mary and Martha. Uh, she pours this oil not only just on his head, but also on his feet. She undoes her hair, which is a, a sign of uh, almost like disrespect, not disrespect, but uh, like letting her guard down. Showing her hair in public is, is a really big deal. And she cleans and wipes Jesus's feet with this perfume, this oil, with her hair. She does this task of a servant. Think about Jesus washing the disciples' feet in the upper room. She does this task for Jesus, lowers and humbles herself to honor him, to serve him. Well, the disciples see this, and in verse 8, they say, it says they were indignant. They say, why this waste, they asked. Why are we not being like doing a good job with the finances here? Why do we have this wasteful spending? This is quite valuable. Jesus, why are you letting this happen? Now, you remember Judas's expectations. His expectations are uh, a political king, a, a military king. Now, if you're going to take over the Roman Empire, you're going to need some money to do that. You're going to need some funds to do that. You're going to need some people and some, some muscle. You're going to need some tools and weapons to be able to make this happen. And so maybe that's the reason why Judas is going, mm, I don't like what's happening here from a financial situation. We need to fill our coffers and we're wasting it right now. But then again, the disciples do know that Jesus 
kind of has a soft spot for, for violence, right? Like he's, he's, not, he's not a big fan of violence. They have heard Jesus tell this turn the other cheek story a few times at this point. And so they're like, uh, we can't say that we need that money to go buy weapons. So what's another angle that we can come at that kind of Jesus would, would like? And so they say this, they say, hey, this perfume could be sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. John and his gospel, John's probably one of the younger disciples, uh, he goes through some extra steps to make sure that we know what he knew about Judas, that we kind of know the backstory of, hey, this Judas guy, he was no good. In his telling of the story, he says Judas, who would later betray him, he objected. And Judas said, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So John wants to make sure, hey, I want you to know Judas was the guy that, that took care of our finances. As we're going around and, you know, we're figuring out places to stay and we're getting food to eat and we're taking care of things, we're taking donations, we're giving it to the poor, all of that money comes through Judas. And John wants to make sure that we know, hey, Judas... He's skimming some money off the top. He's kind of in it for himself. So when he says, hey, Jesus, we should really be giving this money to the poor, he's going, that's a year's worth of wages. If that was in my pocket, I can skim off a lot of that money. He doesn't really care about the poor. Now, a year's worth of wages... I, let's, let's just say $50,000, right? Let, let's say this is really expensive, $30,000, $50,000, something like that. This is worth a lot of money. Now, what would it be like to be there in that moment and to see that money wasted? And I start thinking about, oh, what are all the cool things that I could do? How could I spend $50,000 in the matter of a night, right? Like, there's some cool restaurants you could go to, right? Like, there's some really cool meals. You could have the coolest Kobe beef steak or Wagyu steak or whatever it is. Order the expensive wine. You could, you could have a meal with... 12 people, and you could get to that $50,000 mark, right? I mean, it, it'd probably be possible if you were in the right spot and you went big. But also with that, there's still some nourishment. There's some satisfaction. That's, that's maybe a several hour experience. We're talking about five minutes to see $50,000 go down the drain in five minutes. I don't know about you. I don't live like that. It's really hard to think about how you could let that much money slip out of your hands that fast. Here's the best I can come up with. And this is something like, I guess, rich and famous people do. You buy a case of really expensive wine and you pour it in the bathtub and you take a bath in red wine. Apparently people do that and it's supposed to be good for something. I don't know. Now, once that wine goes into the bathtub, 
For me, it's done, all right? That's a one and done usage. No thank you, I don't want any more. It's, that's, that's gone, it's finished. You might as well pour it down the drain. That's the best I can come up with as far as them seeing $50,000, boom, done, it is finished. We just lost out on all of that money to give to the poor uh, or more likely Judas lining his pockets. It's a lot of money. Judas sees this missed opportunity financially. Yeah, it could have helped the cause, but it could have helped his pockets a little bit more. And the criticism that he receives in this moment helps us know that Jesus, Jesus and Judas are on different pages. They have different hopes and expectations. Judas also reveals his political motivations in this moment. As we continue on, we're going to see that Judas is working towards one type of a kingdom and Jesus is working towards a very different type of kingdom. Let's continue in Matthew 26, verse 10. It says, aware of this, Jesus said to them, and this part kind of feels like Matthew writing, trying to be like, Jesus did this all the time. Something would happen, we'd all look at each other and be like, uh, they're all having this internal conversation. Jesus knows that they're having an internal conversation and then he like scolds them and calls them out on said internal conversation. And so we get this almost, hey, this is how Jesus worked. Aware of this, Jesus says to them, why are you bothering this woman? I, I know that you all aren't happy with this. Why are you giving her such a hard time? In verse 11, he says, or 10, she's done a beautiful thing to me. In 11, the poor you will always have with you. You're always going to have the poor. And Jesus says this, and I think it shakes them to the core. He says, but you will not always have me. Wait, we won't? Like, we just came to Jerusalem. We just came to the big city. This is the moment where we're going to start to take over and we're going to start to establish this new kingdom. What do you mean we won't always have you with us? Verse 12, when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Jesus is saying this is the end of the road for him. What? How? We're just getting started. We've given up our whole lives for you. We're here finally in Jerusalem to start this. And you're saying that it's the end of the road? You're saying that you are going to die? This does not make sense in the political mind and the political aspirations that Judas has. Suddenly Judas realizes that his future aspirations and his future motivations are not going to be fulfilled. I mean, he set himself up to be the, the treasury secretary. Like he's going to be the guy in charge of the purse strings. While James and John, they have their mom fighting their battle for them, saying, hey, Jesus, Jesus, whenever you're in power, make sure one of my boys is at your right hand. Judas is fine with that. Let them squabble over that. He goes, I have the purse strings over here. I'm going to control the money. Who's going to be the most important, powerful person in this new kingdom? Judas thinks it's going to be him. And now Jesus is saying, 
hey, no, 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 I'm going to die. This is it. She's preparing me to die. It's hard, it's hard for him to reconcile that. Jesus wasn't building an army. He wasn't building a kingdom. He was building relationships. He was building a kingdom not of this world, not one that's rooted in political and military might. Judah saw that his days of gold and silver flowing through his pockets was numbered and going to come to an end. And if it's going to come to an end, he might as well do something for himself. He might as well do some bargaining. He might as well get his own while he can. So he bargains as an attempt to gain control. And he settles. Judas had planned on accomplishing things through Jesus. And now that that's not going to happen, he's going to settle. He's going to make his bargain. He'll make sure that he gets his and gets paid a little bit. If Jesus is done, he might as well make a buck off of it. So he asks, what's in it for me? He goes to the chief priests. He knows they want Jesus gone. But they can't eliminate Jesus because of the crowds, right? The crowds that follow Jesus everywhere. If the chief priests and the rulers, the political, the religious authority comes in and they try and take Jesus, they're going to have a full-scale riot on their hand because the people are all about Jesus. They just spent the Sunday before waving palm branches, celebrating him like a triumphal king coming into Jerusalem, saying that he is the king and not Caesar. They're afraid of the people. And Judas comes to them and says, hey, what can you give me? If I can turn him over to you, if I can let you know where Jesus is going to be and when he's going to be there, when there's not a crowd, and you can actually go ahead and go through with your plan, Jesus is done anyway. He's cashing this thing in. I'll help you do what you want. What's in it for me? So they count out 30 pieces of silver, and he looks for an opportunity to betray Jesus. It won't take long before that opportunity presents itself. Um, we won't fully cover this, but uh, in, in John chapter 13, it talks a lot about this upper room experience. And John gives some really interesting insight about how Jesus knew what was going to happen. How not only did Jesus know that Judas was selling him out, Jesus also gave him an out. Now, could you imagine, you're in the upper room, if Jesus says, hey, one of you is going to betray me, and it's Judas right over there, what's going to happen to Judas? I mean, it's going to be a full-on rumble match in that room. We know that Peter has a sword. He's going to cut someone's ear off later. We know that others had weapons. They would never let Judas out of that room alive. And so, yeah, Jesus says, hey, one of you is going to betray me. But John tells this extra little story where Jesus leans over to John and he, he says, hey, I'll give you a sign. It's going to be the one that I hand this bread to. And then as he does that, Jesus tells Judas, he says, hey, 
go and do what you need to do. He covers for him and lets him slip away into the night, handling whatever kind of business they thought Judas needed to handle. After all, he was the money guy. Jesus allowed Judas to go out to make his deal and betray him. But it's not long after that, after he betrays him with a kiss, after he tips off the, the guards as to which one it is, it's dark and you can't really tell, hey, it's going to be the one that I give a kiss to. That's the one that you want to go after. All the disciples flee. They all take off. And then the next morning, Judas starts to realize what he really did. Sure, he probably thinks that Jesus will get punished. He'll, he'll get in trouble. He'll, you know, maybe get roughed up a little bit. He'll get beaten. But this revolution's going to end the same way all of them did. Just, it'll go away. But then when he sees Jesus being carted off to Pilate, when he sees the chief priests taking them to the Roman authorities, that only means one thing. That means they're seeking the death penalty. Because they can't execute Jesus on their own. They need the Roman authority to do that. And when Judas sees that scene happen, he understands what he did, and he's filled with remorse. He runs back to the chief priests with, filled with remorse and returns the 30 pieces of silver to them. He says, I've sinned, I've betrayed innocent blood. And the cold response from them says, what is that to us? That is your responsibility. Judas suddenly has to bear the responsibility of his actions. He throws the money in to the temple and unable to bear the responsibility of his actions, unable to go to Jesus and ask forgiveness, the one person he needs to ask forgiveness from, he cannot do it. He's not able to ask forgiveness. And he goes and he hangs himself. I said at the beginning of this message, I, I hope that we would see our, a little bit of ourselves in the story of Judas. I hope that we can see a little bit of ourselves, that we can have false motivations, can we not? I hope that we can see a little bit of us and how we manipulate uh, encounters to benefit us. How we make poor decisions that have serious consequences sometimes. I hope that we can see ourselves in this story to go, yeah, I've made bad decisions as well. And, and the things that I've done, they have consequences. And in this case, the consequence is Jesus being sentenced to death. It's really easy for us to throw the blame at Judas and say it's his fault. He's the traitor. He's the one that turned Jesus in. But it's our sin that does the same thing, is it not? It's our sin that separates us from God, is it not? We need forgiveness, just like Judas needed 
forgiveness. We need to be able to come to Jesus and to ask for forgiveness. And so as I think about action steps, that's, that's the place I want to start. As I think about an action step, this might not fit for, for everyone, but for some of you, you've never come to a place where you've officially said, Jesus, I know that I, I was wrong. Jesus, I know that I messed up and I need your forgiveness. This Easter, would you make that decision? This Easter, if you know in your head and your heart that, yeah, you really do believe in Jesus and you want to follow him, you want to be a, a, a Christian, someone that bears the name and the responsibility of Jesus, it's time to get baptized. And on Easter Sunday next week, we are going to baptize people. And it's going to be this incredible experience where they declare and proclaim, hey, I love Jesus and I need Jesus and he's forgiven me and I'm living my life for him. Your first step might be that you need to get baptized. Now, another next step that might not fit to everyone, but there might be someone in this room that needs to hear this. is you need to get help. And seeing the way Judas dealt with his brokenness is all too real for you. And that thoughts of, of suicide or thoughts of harming yourself might not be so uncommon for you. And could you get help this Easter? The, the number for the National Suicide Hotline is 800-273-8255. Would you say, no, 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 I'm not going to go down that road. I, I will get help. Maybe you'll never call a number. I'll make a deal with you, okay? You can, you can tell me, you can ask me, kind of raise the flag. Look at me in the eye and say, I identify with Judas. That's all you need to do. To, to, for us to be on the same page that, okay, okay, cool, you're struggling, you need help, I got it, let's figure out how we do that. You can come up to me today and you can say that phrase and if you won't call a number, you won't tell anyone else, tell me and let's get some help. If you're struggling with suicide, if you're struggling with self-harm in any way, shape, or form, don't do that alone. Now, finally, I want to have an action step that everyone can do. As I think about how we get off track from Jesus, how can we get centered? How can we simply do a, a quick, simple one-minute prayer, two-minute prayer? You can do this at any point in your day. When you're sitting in traffic, when you're, you read a, a, a terrible email, a, a, a meeting's about to start, that you feel that anxiety. What can you do? A simple, it's called a breath prayer. All right, and we're gonna, we're gonna practice here in a, in a minute. There's in your Sunday program, in your message notes, there's a link to an article that, that talks about it more. People have been using this for, for centuries. Really, really good stuff. There's lots of ways you can do it. But I, I propose this, a simple phrase. When you breathe in, breathe in through your nose and pray, Lord Jesus. Root this prayer 
in the person of Jesus and the authority that he has as Lord, as the king, as the ruler, the leader of your life. Root your prayer in Jesus. As you breathe in, Lord Jesus, as you breathe out, simply just say this, have mercy. Lord Jesus on the inhale, have mercy on the exhale. And may we get in touch with the parts of our life that are a whole lot like Judas, that have made mistakes, that have not followed the path of Jesus, that have not lived up to God's standard. May we get in touch with that. May we get in line and in sync with that. May God speak to us through this prayer. May we come to Jesus early and often and say, Lord, have mercy. Right now, I invite you, close your eyes, maybe open up the palms of your hands and just take a deep breath in, just breathe in, and then exhale. And breathe in again as you do, silence, say, Lord Jesus. Then exhale, have mercy. One more time, in, Lord Jesus. Exhale, have mercy. And may we and all of our sin and all of our brokenness and all of our poor decisions and our refusal to submit to God and to his ways, may we come before him in these simple moments of prayer. May we own it. May we proclaim it. May we proclaim, Lord Jesus, have mercy. We're going to sing and then we'll do communion.